morning, church. Uh, it's my delight to be with you. Uh, my name is Jessica. If I haven't met you, I am one of the ministers here on staff. And we are continuing through uh, our series titled Overcoming Fear, Choosing Courage in the Age of Anxiety. So, and we hope this series moves us beyond the fear that we carry, whether it's fear collectively or individually, we hope to encourage you to a deeper invitation to move beyond the fears that we're talking about. And today, I'm elated to share with you around the fear when it shows up as anxiety and control. And even more importantly, I hope you experience and see how Jesus' non-anxious presence has the power to remove our anxiety and need for control. So let's read this morning's passage found in Matthew 6, starting at verse 25. It says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let me pray for our time as we begin. Lord, bring your non-anxious presence here with us. We pray for freshness and newness and a sense of coming home to your perfect peace. Lord, please reveal yourself as a calming, loving father, ready to be with us wherever we find ourselves this morning. Amen. So like I started, we have been in a series um, about fear. And in the past few weeks, we focused on all kinds and aspects of fear. But I want to remind us what we do know about fear. We started out that to be human is to be afraid. You know, and fear is this instinctive response and a warning cry that danger is near. And fear is that instinct that floods our body with adrenaline and that burst of energy and clarity to save our life. And we've identified fear that it's this temporary response of intensity. And when we feel safe, it subsides, it's gone. So we have not seen that all fear is bad. And we've seen how actually the pursuit of life is to not actually remove fear altogether. But we've discovered further that we've experienced that there are fears that are complex. And there is a specific complexity that I want to double click and focus on today. And it is in the form of anxiety and the need for control. And this is where it gets even more complex, because anxiety is insanely vague. <laughs> you know, Rollo May, the existential psychologist in the 1950s, was the first one who theorized that anxiety emerged as this occurrence as a result of, an, of a specific uncertainty in life and looming death. Being him as a job would just be crazy to study looming death anxiety. But 
In other words, anxiety is that feeling of dread and weakness and fragility, and often there's no clear identifiable source. This is why it's complex. You know, anxiety was once described to me as the feeling of being rendered utterly powerless, but feeling deeply responsible. And anxiety can often breed this mindset of scarcity. In this mindset, we turn to be motivated by control and the fear of lack. And we're desperate to actually never experience this kind of fear in our lives. Somebody once told me too, anxiety is also referred to that ache and feeling about the wear and tear of a thousand little deaths that we will all die every year in the disappointments and failures and hardships that hit our lives and shatter our dreams. It is this type of dread and sense that can render actually the totality of your life, the relationships, accomplishments to totally meaningless, meaning it makes us second guess everything in our life. And maybe personally, maybe anxiety and control is now tied in with how you feel and view God. And maybe it's related to that relationship where we read and hear sentiments and characteristics about God, but something happens in our life and it makes us question whether or not God is really who he says he is. Maybe it's that we question the unknown and we begin to ask if actually God will actually provide for us. So even whether or not that's true, we choose to try and control and manage aspects of our life that actually were never intended to control. I think of this in parenting. I don't have kids, but I, I called myself a childless mom. I get anxiety raising your guys' kids. So I can't imagine what it's like as parents. My heart goes out to you. I was like, there's a million things I could worry about, right? So we, we experience that kind of anxiety. I also think in singleness and when dating, we think, will we ever find somebody? Uh, are, is our life, are we ever going to get married? Which, by the way, that's not the totality of life, FYI. So, um, <laughs> and in our marriages, too, whether our spouses and issues that we're dealing with and growing to become more like Christ, there are lots of things to make us anxious about. Or even deeper, we have fears about our jobs and our workplaces, and maybe even further that we've experienced some sort of deep pain and trust that is wrecked or death or in some kind of loss. It can go on and on. You know, anxiety can create this idea that we question whether or not we as people are meaningful, that our stories matter, that the things in our lives have meaning. And what's at stake with our anxiety is not just our physical well-being, but our identity. I know I've experienced this in the recent AAPI attacks where I had extreme anxiety, so much that I would almost not be able to leave my house. I was fearful for my family, my friends in our community, for the elderly, and specifically for our city, for the Asian American community in our city. It was paralyzing. And it made me question my identity and what I felt about God, whether or not I actually questioned like, God, are you sure you wanted to make me an Asian American woman? And it was very, very deep, deep questions about identity. So my thoughts were riddled with anxiety and then I began to try and control circumstances. It was not, it was not good. <laughs> and this is why it gets overwhelming for us is that we experience this type of thing and anxiety and control's intent is to paralyze and immobilize us. So you think there has to be a better way. And as followers of Jesus, friends, I wanna tell you there is hope in another way to live. We see Jesus' non-anxious presence has the power to remove our anxiety and the need for control. 
And I would go further to say our invitation is to be courageous in faith and follow Jesus in this way. So we ask ourselves, what do we mean by this term non-anxious presence? So in order to understand this kind of framework, we look to Edwin Friedman's work where he applied this to anxiety and leadership. We have used some of this framework in our church and, and resources to how we actually approach leadership development, discipleship, and formation, but he's helped us articulate and give language to the water that we're swimming in, which is our culture, and where and how anxiety shows up and how we can actually recognize it. So a little backstory. Friedman was a rabbi and a family therapist and an expert in systems theory and was the first to tell us that all organizations have personalities like families, and he could apply these insights from being a rabbi and a family therapist to churches and synagogues, further to rectors and rabbis and politicians and teachers and so on. And he has a famous published work called A Failure of Nerve. And they give, this gives us insights into systems theory work where he has the studies and applied the data to this framework of leadership in our culture. In summary, his work highlighted this basic premise that while Eastern cultures and ancient cultures felt that anxiety was cyclical or that, um, yeah, our society was cyclical, the West actually believes and is built around this myth of progress, meaning we are here to work to achieve some sort of utopia. And, you know, this meaning, like, saying that the West is actually progressing economically and technologically, meaning, great, we have a higher standard of living, there might be more money, but he's arguing saying also the West is regressing emotionally and socially. So this has the correlation to anxiety, right? We see and experience anxiety levels. We can probably think of things in our life. I don't have to go deep dive into statistics where I feel like the growing number of depression, mental health disorders, personality disorders, and the use of medication is on the rise. Even the um, relational aspects, we experience this in our lives. We see our human relationships being affected and questioned with aspects of attachment disorders, marriages, the decline of marriage within our family systems, and not to mention another framework of sexuality and gender, adding an even more confusing and chaotic framework that can inhibit even more layered chronic anxiety. You know, Friedman explains that the self-perpetuating cycle and self-reinforcing of chronic anxiety is moving the West further into a downward spiral. I know that we can relate to some of this and how we feel. Friedman goes further on to help us frame anxiety by giving us five characteristics of anxious societies. So meaning we can identify if we are in an anxious place, if we can identify and relate to some of these aspects. I think they're genius. So this will give us perspective and also has been helpful for me to give me language to the things that I'm feeling and can't quite put words to. The first one he said was reactivity, meaning we are constantly reacting to external stimuli in life with internal anxiety. My body begins to cringe when I think of the 24-hour news cycle and the Twitter feeds, even though they're fun. But then you find yourself four hours later, like, pointless. It's wasting all this time in following these threads. Like, it's not helpful. <laughs> Number two, the characteristic is hurting. This means that no matter how individualistic or independent we think we are, we are hardwired neurobiologically to follow the crowd. 
We can see the roots of this in cancel culture and or mob mentalities, both in person and online. The third characteristic is blame displacement, meaning we focus our symptoms instead of on the root or the whole system. And in general, we take the posture of the victim and blame others. We start having this fear of offending someone or something, and it leads to this weird kind of paralysis. Freeman quotes an example of, I feel like, how anxiety shows up even in our culture we can relate to. He quotes, perhaps the most outstanding example of blame displacement is in chronologically, or sorry, in chronically anxious America is that we have come to be called anti-incumbency. The tendency of voters to reject whoever is in office almost irrespective of their political party affiliation. This flailing at the political winds amounts to a collective irresponsibility on the part of voters seeking magical, quick-fix answers to a complex range of problems of existence. So instead of focusing on their own response to the challenges of change, these voters find fault in their political stars. And this is not just a political phenomenon. It's occurring with regard to coaches, educators, CEOs, and clergy, not to mention marriage partners and parents. Number four characteristic is the quick fix mentality, meaning we have a low threshold to pain. It doesn't leave any room for our lives what we mean when we say endurance or perseverance, and it shifts our focus to quick fixes or idolizes efficiency, meaning we want quick, easy, simple solutions. Number five, the poorly defined leader. This is saying that no one can lead in these type of societies or environments. They're gonna lead in an environment of reactivity, low emotional resilience, and the quick fix mentality. He goes on further to explain that leaders chosen to lead in this environment will tend to be immature, without the capacity to resist sabotage, reactivity, and dysfunction. So, all of these are present in our world today. <laughs> and these are signs of anxiety-ridden spaces. And with these characteristics present, Friedman tells us that the only way to stop the self-perpetuating cycle of anxiety is to inject into it the middle, a non-anxious presence. Friedman tells us the answer is not found in quick fixes or instant gratification or solutions, but for true leadership marked by strength and self-differentiation, which we mean a leader that's like this does not get caught up in the emotions of others. And this leader's formula for success is about more maturity, not more data, perseverance, not technique, and ownership, not soul empathy. This type of leader steps into this environment and is a calm, at peace, wise, compassionate, loving, empathetic, but firm, confident, and is able to stop this cycle of anxiety. This means someone steps in and can bring the nature of the whole group up to non-anxiousness. And here we are, 25 years later after this study, we know that this cycle is rampant in our culture. Perhaps we felt this even more in the last few years with the world events, elections, racism, and the global pandemic, just to name a few. <laughs> we feel this in our body. And 
I would say instead of us perpetuating this chronic anxiety cycle, perhaps what we need, what our church needs, what our families and our workplaces need, what our jobs need, and what our city needs is you and me and others to step right in the middle of these spaces and be that non-anxious presence. This non-anxious presence that is strong, unhurried, peaceful, wise, relaxed, and confident. And friends, Jesus is this kind of non-anxious presence. It's for us and for the world. Jesus is this leader that's brave and courageous and a person whose presence has the power to remove anxiety and control. I think of Jesus throughout his life. I mean, he didn't start his ministry until he was 30 years old. I would have been like, I've wasted 30 years of my life until I can actually start. Jesus was not rushed. And the first thing he did in his public ministry was to go to the desert to be led by the Spirit for 40 days. He knew what he was about and what his father was about. I think of other examples in Jesus' ministry of the synagogue official's daughter on his way to heal in Mark 5. He wasn't in a rush. He could stop and was attentive to the crowd. I also think of Lazarus in John 11, and Jesus wasn't even hurried by death. He wasn't in a rush. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't ignore things either. He was present to notice and be attentive to what was happening around him. I can't imagine crowds. If I was in that crowd, I would feel so anxious and angry at Jesus's perceived lack of urgency. But Jesus wasn't. He was confident. He knew where he was going and what he was set to do. And being unhurried and a non-anxious presence does not mean being lazy, uninvolved, casual, or careless. Jesus's non-anxious presence gave way to an even more intentional presence, greater involvement, and a depth of love to those he was around and interacting with. His relationships were built around intimacy. And with Jesus, we can follow his lead of being courageous in stepping into the space and bringing this non-anxious presence. We might be asking, like, how does Jesus do that? How does he pull us out of anxiety? Referring back to our passage in Matthew, we see that Jesus was not anxious about anything in his life. He taught it to us. He lived this way. He believed it himself, and he trusted in the provision and promises of God. He commanded us, actually, don't be anxious. Do not worry. This is not just a simple command. This isn't Jesus asking us to question or expressing a sentiment, a mere sentiment, like saying, maybe you feel this way, and maybe if you feel like it, just don't worry. That's way easier said than done. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus' command is multi-layered and relatable to see a more full picture of his loving character and how he responds when fear, control, and anxiety appear in our lives. Jesus does not say, hey, list all those things you are worried about and let's keep listing them for our entire lives. (laughs) Thank God he doesn't do that. And Jesus does not respond with, wow, you know what? You're right about all your worries. Yeah, I'm really sorry you're feeling that way. By the way, that's like the lamest apology. (laughs) No, we see that Jesus doesn't get caught up in the emotions of others. He is steady and confident and loving that way. Even closely, listen, I don't mean that Jesus wasn't emotional 
or that he ignores emotions. It's quite the opposite. In fact, I would say he is showing us a greater love and understanding because he relates to us, he knows us, and he still promises us not to worry. We look back in verse 25. It says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, which you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus knew worry would not add a single moment to our life. He knew there was more to life than our anxieties. And he knew our intrinsic value and worth was not dependent upon material things. And he gives us perspective of great value and promise and how to provide as a freeing way to live. We go further on verse 27 that says, Can any one of you worrying add a single hour to your life? Jesus gives us perspective that anxiety and control is not what God has for us. He doesn't want us to get distracted by unimportant things in our life. If Jesus wasn't focused on it, we don't need to be either. We go further on in verse 28. It says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Jesus tells us that he trusts the father and the father is trustworthy. He knows what we need. Further in verse 33, he gives us perspective and assurance. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He believed this. He lived this way. And in turn, God's character emboldens our confidence to take that huge step of faith, to step in and bring that non-anxious presence to wherever we are. Jesus did this for us and for the world. Jesus assured us, and instead of control and our anxiety, we can let Jesus' non-anxious presence pull us into that state of being. So we also ask ourselves, how do we become people like Jesus with this non-anxious presence? Because I feel like the invitation is for not only for us to experience Jesus to do this, but for us to do the same. We are courageous and we actively engage like Jesus did. And I want to highlight five things that can help us cultivate this presence. The first one is posture. We build awareness and notice where and what Jesus is doing. In Alan Fadling's book, An Unhurried Life, he describes Jesus' posture as, quote, Jesus saw himself as an apprentice to his father in his work. He was not working on his own. Whatever he did was something he had seen his father working at. So we ask ourselves, am I following Jesus in my own way of working? Is all the work I'm doing in keeping with the father is doing and how he is doing it? Do I know what the father is doing in the lives of people around me who are affected by my work? Number two is rest. Good work grows best in the soil of good rest. 
And here's also where we can learn from Jesus. Jesus wasn't lethargic or lazy. He was actually the opposite. He was actively engaged, but he knew when to rest and when to engage with things. So we can continue to learn and practice this in Sabbath delight. Also, I have to mention this is sleep. Someone once told me the greatest submission to God is by going to bed. I feel like we need to hear that, to turn off the phones, to sit in the dark, and if we can't sleep, that's when we talk to God, to say, God, I submit to you. Let me go to sleep, please. (laughs) Please. Um, So yeah, number three, dependence. Ironically, we can't just will ourselves to trust, and it can't be self-generated. So what we need is radical dependence on God. We pay attention to the faithfulness of Jesus and we follow and see that Jesus's response to suffering and pain was not to run away in fear, but to engage and walk forward to it. And it wasn't that Jesus promised our life would be free of suffering and pain. What he did promise was that he would be with us every step of the way. The presence of God would abide in our lives and continue to abide. And we continue to practice awareness and trust when those moments come. Number four, loyalty, and I mean emotional loyalty. We meaning we have faith in Jesus, and we don't cling to anxiety or put our faith in our emotions or our feelings or the need for control. I'm not talking about the sentiments that if we follow Jesus, nothing bad will happen to us. I'm talking about when they do, we have the deep abiding knowledge, confidence, and trust that we cling to know that Jesus is good all of the time. We also don't base our relationships solely on our emotions and feelings. There is a sentiment I love that says emotions are great friends, but horrible masters. So we cling to Jesus. And there are a number of ways that I've cultivated this in my life this last season, this really hard, anxious, filled season, is that my importance of cultivating relationships with deep Christian community We wanted to be connected with community of believers. We practice the rule of life together and we have prayer and scripture memorization. I need those people and friends and our church to tell us and remind us and give us perspective that when those emotions and feelings feel like they're gonna overrun me and take my life, it's not true. Like they need to tell me God's truth. Number five is mystery. We embrace miracles and mystery as Jesus did. This one is so important. Jesus did not use chaos to manipulate or manage our lives. In fact, he released the need for control. He let the will of the Father minister to others, and we are open enough to let him use us in those moments. We can't calculate that stuff. (laughs) He relied on the inner workings and expressions of the Holy Spirit, where we can begin to discover how the Holy Spirit is speaking and prompting us in our lives. If you want to go further, I would say look back at our series of the Empowering Presence and the Everyday Mystic, where you can start there and begin to cultivate this type of stuff in our lives. I want to invite the band up as we close. And I want to lead us through an exercise of imagining our life with Jesus. Let's imagine this non-anxious presence has the power to remove anxiety and control. So if you want, just close your eyes or just, you can look at me too, it's fine. (laughs) But I want us to imagine what that non-anxious presence might feel like.
This life that we have is actually not driven by the anxiety, but we're actually relaxed, unflappable, courageous, and confident. You are not running on adrenaline until you crash, but instead you find this deep inner stability that comes from deep trust, confidence in the Father. We have relaxed confidence during work's most stressful deadlines. We have relaxed confidence about your finances. We have relaxed confidence about your dating life, your friendships, your education, your parenting, your aging parents. We have relaxed confidence coming from a deep trust in the Father, and that helps you to be this non-anxious presence for others. And what if those one-off great days where you feel relaxed, free, and confident, what if those could take up more days of your regular life? And not only that, what if that allowed you to show up for others in a way that you could help transform their anxiety in their life? Being a non-anxious presence for others means standing in and up for a relaxed confidence that embodies the peace of Christ that brings calm and comfort to wherever you are. This is our invitation, friends. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we take comfort in the fact that you assured us of two things, presence and promise. Jesus, you promised you are with us. And we do not have to fear or be anxious or control the outcome. Jesus, you tell us to not fear and you know there is nothing good that comes from worrying. It won't add a single hour to our lives. Thank you for knowing that, God. Jesus, you see our value. And Jesus, we trust that you know what we need. We thank you, Jesus, for your non-anxious presence. Help us to imitate you, to bring this to those that need a life of calm, free, peaceful, confident, and unhurried pace of life. Amen.